Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Groundhog Day. Hosted by Groundhog Day. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Yes. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Cell Block. Get a cocktail and a poem from the world's last barman poet at Cell Block, the hottest club in New York. It's a, a deep one. <laughs> I'm never going to know where you get these. Welcome to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are filmmakers who talk about films, as you can probably imagine if you clicked on this. Usually. Which, which apparently people actually do. Yeah, we just found out, right? 10,000 downloads now? Yeah, we were just over 10,000 downloads. That's amazing. It really is. And it kind of came on the heels of... Our buddy Scott, who apparently is an avid listener as well, which it blows me away that anyone listens to this, uh, much less that our friends listen to it. Because that to me, anybody who, for one, listens to multiple hour long podcasts means that they must actually be for some godforsaken reason enjoying themselves. But then he got he posted us on an IG story and someone was like, hey, that's my jam. And I'm we were like, wait. (laughs) How do you know this girl? And he's like, I, and Hannah, if you're listening to this episode by chance, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just one of those mind blowing things because I look at the stats every once in a while. Now I don't really pay attention to them yeah. anymore just because they don't really move. They're pretty consistent. And to me, I just in my head, I thought these were bots. <laughs> oh, really? I thought we had like 10 or 20 consistent people and the rest were like bots <laughs> downloading <laughs> our show. <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently not. It's real people. Real people. So that have names like Hannah. That's really weird. Cause to me, I, we have a few vocal listeners like, uh, Izzy, our guy, Joe from Hawaii, Joe from New Zealand. We have a lot of Joes. Yeah. (laughs) I'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. All Joes, you are welcome here. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that was a, that was a pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, I have nowhere else to go with that topic of no, conversation. That's, that's great. It felt really good that day because that all happened at the same time, right? Yeah. We yeah. hit the 10,000 mark and we found out uh, that there's actual people that like listening to us. Super weird because it's one of those things when you assume everybody who's listening to the show, I assume that everyone who listens, 99% of those people, they know us or they're referred by people who know us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just a, a smattering of people like, Hey, I, I discovered y'all and I listen and I, you know, tune in fairly regularly, uh, and to just kind of find one of your friends randomly meeting one of those people out in the wild like that, uh, is really cool. It's yeah. like, a secret handshake that you suddenly bust out on someone and they like reciprocate and they know all yeah, the secret like, handshake moves. Like, yeah. She was like, Oh yeah, the pestle is my jam. Like, wait, what? Like, it's, it's your what? <laughs> you, your what? How? I don't, yeah. You, you mean you have a pestle at home? Oh no. You, you listen to the podcast. Oh, okay. And then he, and he tells her, Oh yeah, I was in a band with Todd for eight years. She said, that's the same Todd. Oh, I, I didn't know. Small world. Small world, man. It gets Small smaller world. every day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really appreciate everyone listening. I, Very much so. Yeah. Um, anyway. So what are we going to do today? I'm really excited. We're going to do Edge of Tomorrow. Yes. Yeah, so I've seen this movie like probably five times. Yeah. I've, yeah. Minimum, for me, I've probably seen it like 10 times by now. Okay. Yeah, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that. Uh, but so if you haven't seen Edge of Tomorrow, please pause this episode. We're going to talk about a bunch of spoilers and 
give all the good stuff away so we don't want to ruin anything. Pause the episode, go watch it, come back and see if you agree with us or not. Yeah, Hannah. <laughs> We're just going to talk just to Hannah. Today's episode. Hannah, today's episode is sponsored by Hannah. <laughs> Literally sponsored by her, her, her listening and her download. So yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of things. Uh, we'll talk about cinematography, how the color grading, the lenses and the lighting all impacted the story. At least I think again, this is all our opinions on things. Well, you haven't brought up story or uh, color grading in a while. Yeah. This will be a a fresh minor take. It's not like this huge, crazy in-depth thing, but it's this light thing that I think they did that I think really helped communicate certain aspects of the story and we'll also talk about shooting a time travel story or groundhog day story i don't know what to call this type of story but it's a rinse and repeat kind of thing yeah Um, and shooting that presents certain challenges and uh, approaches that may not be obvious you know to to a viewer Um, we'll also talk about a little of the writing and story and other such stuff and things and stuff So a quick synopsis of the film, a soldier fighting aliens gets to relive the same day over and over again. Gets to. The day restarting every time he dies. Directed by Doug Lyman. Screenplay by Christopher McQuarrie, Jez Butterworth, and John Henry Butterworth. Based on the novel by Hiroshi Sakurazaka. That was pretty good. That That was was pretty pretty good. good. Yeah, yeah. Cinematography by Dion Beebe. And featuring Tom Cruise's Cage, Emily Blunt as Rita Vertasky, Brendan Gleeson as General Brigham, and Bill Paxton as Master Sergeant Farrell. Squad, this here is Private Cage. Private Cage, J Squad. Isn't that an officer's uniform? Those sure ain't officer cufflinks. See, everyone is having a productive morning. You know, it gives me a swell of pride knowing soldiers of your caliber will be leading the charge tomorrow. Tip of the spear, edge of the knife, crack of my ass. Oh. Robert Camel, what is my view of gambling in the barracks? Dislike it, Sergeant Farrell. Nance, why do I dislike it? Because it entertains the notion that our fate is in hands other than our own. And what is my definitive position on the concept of fate, Chorus? Through readiness and discipline, we are masters of our fate. You might call that notion ironic. But trust me, you'll come around. Yeah, so there's stuff in that scene that I'll I'll talk about later on. But uh, what was your... Reaction. I mean, I, if you've seen this five so, times, yeah, it's so much fun. I mean, uh, yeah, every time I see it, I get, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I get really giddy when I, when it's like, you know, apocalyptic films. I just love them. And some people have a problem with Tom Cruise because he jumped up on a couch 10 years ago right. on Oprah. I think he's a brilliant actor. I've always thought he's a brilliant actor. He's fantastic in this movie. I love that he does all his own stunts. And uh, Emily Blunt is fantastic, as, as she always is. She's beautiful, but she's just a great actress. It's not just because she's beautiful. Like 100%. I, I think, especially in this movie, her beauty actually like makes her even better. It's like everything about her is just amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and yeah. so everybody, you know, and everybody's following her, right? Because she's just this badass that was able to kill 100 aliens and she looks the part man she does she she really does Ooh. yeah she's fit and strong and 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 fast and agile and yeah and then bill paxton i mean 
he is the perfect cast <laughs> for, right. for that role. You just love him every time. Uh, just so good. So good. Yeah. So I love this movie. It's a lot of fun. It does get a little slow at the end for me mm. a little bit, but every time, like I really like him discovering getting a little bit farther each time and us realizing, Oh my gosh, this has probably happened hundreds of times. Right. Right. Cause every once in a while he'll drop a new nugget that like, yeah. Oh, we, we didn't hear that part. So the implication is that he learned that in some other cycle. Yeah. Or like we're getting to this spot uh, for the first time, but it's old hat for him. Yeah. And, and he's like, this is the farthest when they get to the helicopter, this is the farthest that we've been. And we've been here. We never get any farther than this. You right? never get any farther. Right. Than you this. never get. And, and you wonder how Ooh. many times has he seen her die? Yeah. And he obviously loves her. Right. So it has to be really hard, but then it also has to be really hard to die every day. Like you have to die. Right. How many times did he have to kill himself? Oh God. Yeah. Because he, you know, like at some point he has to reset. Yeah. Yeah. When she's not around. Right. Exactly. Yeah. If she's, if she's gone and uh, yeah. Ooh. Anyway, it, it's a really interesting premise and I, I enjoy it every time I see it. So same. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those that kind of, it was a sleeper hit at the, the movie theater, you know, yeah, like right. nobody was really talking about it. I don't remember when it came out necessarily and what else it was competing against, but it got totally overlooked and I went to watch it cause a buddy of mine was like, Hey, have you seen it yet? I was like, no, not yet. I'll get around to it. He's like, no, 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 go check it out. So I was like, all right. And was just like, why is nobody talking about this movie? <laughs> it's some of the best sci-fi, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, that we've had. And it's hard to make good sci-fi that's also popcorn action. Like yeah. it, that you have the headiness that's in there, but it's not overwhelming you at the same time. It's really fun to just be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're really smart about not being monotonous about doing the same thing over and over again. They'll jump huge swaths of time, yeah. you know, like he'll wake up and then all of a sudden he's on the beach. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you know, everything that happens and it happens the same way. Or even if stuff has changed in between, it doesn't even matter what happened to get him to the beach. He's just there. Yeah. And they're very smart about, about that. So they can kind of do whatever they want yeah. with the timeline, right? Yeah, it's really efficient in that way, and it's a it's a smart way to just make sure that people are constantly engaged in what's happening. Because if you if you do what you're saying, you know, which would be a mistake in a lot of films of resetting and going through this whole charade, you know, one too many times, you start to lose that engagement, and maybe you miss something important uh, because you were tuned out, and then. The story doesn't feel like it's making any sense. And it's because, you know, you just weren't sharp with your writing and your points of entry yeah. uh, on when you're going to start these cycles uh, or days. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it was really it was actually really interesting watching it right before we watched that other movie that we saw that we're not going to talk. about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. Because they're both action movies. They're both sci fi movies and they both have like arcs, right? Story mm -hmm. arcs pretty major story arcs. And the first thing we're going to talk about is cinematography. And I feel like these are very good examples and I'm sorry, we can't tell you what movie we're talking <laughs> about, but these are very good examples of why like a movie like this, we like a movie like this. Yeah. Right? Because certain films and you see this a lot and we'll just generically talk about big budget action films. Like they do, yeah. especially heavy special effects films or visual effects films. They'll do a lot of these kind of generic setups, right? They'll do, Oh, we're going to get our 
main coverage. We're going to get our wide. We're going to get our mediums, and then we'll get our close-ups. Uh, and if there's a technical shot we're going to pull off, then we'll we'll insert that. And that's a very safe way to go about it. But whenever I see this happen in a lot of these big-budget, heavy visual effects films, I'm thinking that oh, you're you're protecting your visual effects artists because that becomes a much easier way to insert visual effects uh, to block it and to uh, perfectly choreograph it. Uh, if you're going to do a, a motorized camera move, then it becomes easier to to lock that down, and then you can insert your green screen and your mark markers, you know, for visual effects artists to go in and uh, motion track everything and insert all the effects. And it's just a very simple way. They really didn't go that way in this film. No, right. <laughs> there's all this great handheld movement. And they're yeah. swinging the camera around, and there's visual effects in those shots, which had to have been a pure nightmare. Oh my gosh! Um, in terms of we're gonna, we need this to be 100% right. And so I don't know if it just means more testing and pre-production, or if it meant just trusting your VFX team to to do it right and. Maybe you're logging all this camera information digitally so that your visual effects team can come in and say, okay, what lens was it? What are the aberrations in the lens? And there's, you have no idea the painstaking detail that so many visual effects uh, teams go through to make sure this all matches perfectly. Yeah. You know, this is a really good place for me to like bring this point up. And I, I thought about this watching this movie because I've obviously never directed a movie like this where you have to film for effects. And I just wonder, you know, do you have the VFX team on set with you as the director? Are you knowing what you have to capture so that they have what they need to do their job? Like how do, I guess what I'm saying is if you're a new director coming in and you have, and you're trying to direct a movie like Edge of Tomorrow, where you have all of these, all of this VFX that you have to have to do. Obviously, you know, you have things like people getting picked up and thrown around and stuff, but you also have stuff like sand flying mm -hmm. everywhere. And how do you, how do you film for that so that VFX has what they need in the, in the actual footage to then do their job i mean I it's don't crazy know. i mean i'm a little shaky on this but i think that's the role of a visual effects supervi uh, supervisor they'll come on set and yeah. say and the director or the dp or both might say do you have what you need uh, in order to make this shot work he's like yeah well let me get this this and this and then it really emphasizes the the point of pre-production planning and and whenever it, and this is why so many uh, vfx companies go under when you think about rhythm and hue uh, and companies like that where you start out with a budget doug lyman comes in and says hey we're making edge of tomorrow how much is it going to cost to do these effects and you have your your line producer who goes in with the uh the visual effects team and they set a budget up okay we're going to need you know 500 shots that are have visual effects in them um, and these shots are going to cost x amount based on blah 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 but then what happens is you'll get on set mm -hmm. and like you're indicating things change and suddenly you know that shot that you thought was going to happen isn't really working anymore and now or you have a better idea on set you're like, okay well let's do this instead and suddenly what you were doing in post prepping for is now a completely different shot. That means, oh, we were just going to shoot the head of, you know, the the alpha or the omega. Now we're getting its full body, you know, in this other shot. 
oh crap, well, we need lighting rigs or whatever. Like there's just so much more that goes into that. Oh, we have a storytelling moment that happens that we need an extra shot. That's this organic flashback or memory, you know, flood or whatever visualization that they're inserting into Cage's head. Now we need this extra shot. Well, it's not in our budget. Well, we don't have the budget for it, uh, but we need it. And it becomes a nightmare, like uh, to some degree of people trying to bend over backwards to stay on good friendships, you know, because this is a relationship business. And if you screw over a director, they're going to remember it the next time. But at the same time, and so a lot of the, those powers, you know, are, are in the pocketbook and the people who are paying. Uh, and so it becomes this weird tug of war, I'm sure, that I am not familiar with personally. Well, not to this degree. Like, I have my own clients that I tug of war with, but I know that feeling of I got to give more than I probably get. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a it's a game, but you do have uh, supervisors on set, at least one, uh, probably a, a handful. He's I'm sure he's got his own team on set with him to help set up markers and light the green screens and get what they need out of it for sure. Yeah. I would like to know the process of like, yeah. you know, getting this shot where this thing comes up out of the, out of the sand and then grabs this guy, throws him over here, grabs this guy, throws him over here, splits this guy in half and then like rolls away or something, you know, like yeah. how do you feel? How do you film that in camera so that at, at the end it's going to, be what the, the VFX needs because but yeah, it's in pre-production, right? But they did such a great job because they, they don't just rely on, you know, visual effects to do all these special effects things right. where they are actually throwing dirt and that's in response to a chopper crashing, you know, and suddenly Tom Cruise is covered in dirt. They had to do that on set. Um, and maybe that's one big studio uh, that they're in. And it's, it's a lot where they have this big green screen and they, the ocean isn't actually there. It's just a bunch of dirt. And they, this is why movies like this cost, you know, $150 million or whatever the budget is, is because in order to create that set, you have to bring in tons of dirt and you have to, you know, shape it to look like a beach. And now you have to insert trees or whatever. Like there's tons and tons of work and, I don't know about mains, but thousands and thousands of man hours that go into, you know, creating this kind of stuff that's mind boggling. And one of the things that would definitely discourage me from ever wanting to direct, you know, a heavy visual effects film like this. Definitely. <laughs> but then I see yeah. this movie and I'm like, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. man. So badly. So tell me what you thought about cinematography. Like, what are your. What are so your actually, I'm a work in reverse. I realized after okay. I wrote the show notes uh, that. I want to set it up in backwards. And so we'll start with reshooting the same day, those resets or flashbacks, uh, you know, that style of film, you could call a number of things based on the script and the movie. But in this case, we're doing these uh, resets where he's resetting the day, as they say in the film. And there's a lot to take into account because you might just think, oh, well, you get to shoot this one scene. You set it up once and now you can shoot, you know, uh, 50 takes to cover whatever 10 different scenes and you're done. You move on. But it's not quite that simple whenever you start thinking about the response. They're, it's the same scene, but it's a little different each time. And so those differences need to be taken into account in a number of ways, starting with the performance. Like the acting needs to be just a little bit different every time so that we buy in to him not realizing what the heck is going on. That first time he dies and comes back. There's that confusion on his face. He needs to be able to inhabit that. And I think one of the best ways to start there is as an actor, you're reading the script. 
You're writing notes on the script to reflect your train of thought for each moment, each reset, having an internal understanding and writing that down, making a note of it, super important because, and, and maybe most of all on your first read through to make those notes because you only read it for the first time once and experience those emotions without pretense of what's going to happen next once you only get one time to have that first impression. And so being willing to sit there with your script and make all these notes, Oh man, in this scene, I felt drained. Like I was tired and exhausted and upset. And so whenever you get on set and here's where this really pays off. So when you get on set, you might shoot for eight hours, this one setup, but you're giving 20 different emotions, you know, throughout all these uh, takes and being able to go back to your nose and saying, okay, which version of this day are we doing now? Oh, we're doing the one where I'm, I'm giving up on all my friends. I've lost kind of my humanity or my sense of self. And now I'm just abandoning everything. Okay. Okay. Here's where I'm at emotionally on this. And then he has to play that because otherwise as an actor, you walk on set, everything looks the same. The camera might be somewhere else, but you don't really see that. It's just a camera. It's somewhere else. But physically, the set looks the exact same. So mentally, you need to be able to inhabit. Where is my character at right now? Let me play that. I, I, I was just going to add, I think it's really important for like our listeners or our viewers to like really think about what an actor goes through when they're looking at a script. Imagine... Imagine, and I would I would challenge anybody listening or or watching, go find a random script online that you've never you've never seen you you don't know the story at all and read through it as if you were one of those characters right. All of a sudden, then you see oh they these are just words on a page they don't they're 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 nothing right. You literally have to turn them into something, and it's I mean we're both actors so we we've done that, right? We, mm. we understand that, but it's really hard to understand if you haven't been on that side of the camera in front of the camera to know that what I want to do is I want to look at these words and I want to turn them into what I think this emotion is, or this, this character's feeling right now or, or whatever, because I want to bring something to set. I don't want to just show up and have the director tell me what he thinks it should be. It's it. I'm the one going through it. So you literally have to take the words and turn them into the emotion, almost despite what the writer even, yeah, you know, intended. You, you need right? to have a perspective. You're not exactly. That's why you're hired. You're not. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, you're not passive in this. Mm -mm. And it's always interesting as a writer. Sometimes I'll see an actor deliver something that wasn't what I had in mind, but it's so much better. That's cool. That's a really, really cool moment. Yeah. Oh, that that has a because yeah, I sit. Awesome. You know, whenever I'm writing a script and working on a project. Like I have in my head the way this flow is going to happen, the conversation, I can hear this other character and, you know, character A is this really uh, dominant alpha kind of personality and the other characters is kind of, you know, go along to get along, peace, hippie, whatever. And the way they interact, I can hear it so clearly in my head, but sometimes you get into an audition and someone starts reading a part and you're like, oh, that makes so much sense why they feel this way about this character. And so, yeah, as an actor, you're brought in to add your perspective and to add your life experience and, uh, yeah, to be a professional and bring something to the table. And that's so much fun. It is. Right. And it's a re it's really cool that you're like that. Cause I, I feel like a lot of writers might be stuck in, 
in, no, it's supposed to, like, this is what I intended because this is maybe if they're writing from a point of view of a, like a personal thing they went through. No, this is how I felt Yeah, for this. Ego. You gotta, you gotta let it go. You do. You're, you're putting the story out there. You're giving it away. You do. And that's why I really always look forward to working with the most talented people. I don't, yeah. I've, I've been cast in ways that I'm huh. like, maybe this isn't the role for me. Hmm. Um, most talented people. <laughs> well, I just, I get, I see directors cast for, cast for the look instead of for the talent. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. And that's really frustrating because there's also been a lot of parts where I'm like, that was my role mm-hmm. and you just did yourself a disservice by not casting me, uh, which is hard for me to say out loud, but it's, it's one of those things where you're like, Oh, I see what you did. You wanted someone with whatever the square jaw. And at the same time, you don't have someone who has anything to add to this part. Yeah. Uh, you just want someone to mimic, you know, no pun intended. Uh, sure. <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, as an actor, you're, you're doing a lot to make sure that you're shooting the same look in the same day, but every single take, every single scene is going to be different. And you need to know what am I trying to accomplish right now? What am I feeling? Even though everything around me looks the exact same as it did for the last scene, but this is a different thing. And so filming it though is, is also going to have its challenges. Uh, you need to, as a filmmaker, you know, analyze the script and say, what am I trying to accomplish in the scene? What's the emotional aspect? And is there a new angle that I need to communicate the tone of the reset? And so you're asking yourself a question like, is it a rinse repeat moment? Like, is this, supposed to add to that feeling of, oh, we're doing the same thing again that we just did. Well, in that case, change nothing. Shoot it the exact same. And now it's on the actor to portray like, oh, I'm waking up again. Because you have that, you know, maggot, bang, maggot, bang. (laughs) And he just kind of keeps waking up. Uh, And that's a great way to kind of get us into Cage's mindset of, I keep doing the same damn thing again and again and again. So you shoot it the same way again and again and again, but it's also very rapid fire. So you don't get bored as an audience because there's this kind of comedy that they're injecting. But then you might ask yourself, has something changed? And that's when you can emphasize that with a change in angle, with a change in lighting or music uh, and probably, you know, a thousand different ways. Maybe you ask the actor, stay down a little longer, like keep right, open your eyes and then close them for just a hair longer, like dread this moment, uh, whatever. You might want to add something specific based on what you're trying to accomplish, but dipping into the story. So that opening scene, that clip that we played at the beginning um, with the film where he's having them eat their cards. Uh, and it's very symbolic because he's trying to communicate to his team. Fate is not a gamble and they're gambling right now. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't like that idea of y'all are gambling whenever you should be realizing that fate is in your hands, which seems to be a point of the movie that they're making here. And he has them, you know, choir or chorus to him back. What do I think about fate? You know, what's my concept of fate? And they say that through readiness and discipline, we are masters of our fate. And he tells, you know, cage, you might call that notion ironic, but trust me, you'll come around. And obviously this is speaking to, where he's going to be by the end of the film because everything he does from there on out is about readiness and discipline and repeating uh, and coming around to that very notion Hmm. of being ready. And then, you know, right after that, he tells them, tomorrow morning you will be baptized born again and obviously that's only too true yeah (laughs) it's very on the nose but it's great it's it's perfect it's kind of what you want to you know as an audience when you're anticipating what this film's core concept is 
play with it a little. Like, yeah, that's yeah. good. You know, find your own unique way to play with it, but do that. And, it's, and it makes it a little amusing and you're kind of winking at the audience a little bit and it's fun. And so whenever they start their training, it's interesting because she makes a comment to him, an enemy that knows the future can't lose. Of course, they don't really understand what that means to the full extent. But for him, he doesn't want to die, right? He kind of keeps crawling away to avoid shooting him in training. Uh, he, and so, no matter what, right, he's got a, he's crippled. And he's like, no, I don't want to die. Yeah, he like, breaks his back. Right. He's like, no, I, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Play through. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because watching him die had no risk. It was fun. It was fun to watch him die again and again, and to some yeah. extent, watch him suffer. Yeah. Like it, it was just comedy. And by the way, huge hat tip to Tom Cruise, because I completely buy into his transformation. Totally. Without yes. a second guess. Yeah. Like I believe he is yeah. completely incompetent at the beginning and that he gets gradually better until he's a stone cold killer. Mm-hmm. Like I am so impressed with his performance. Yeah. And that's Great. really hard to do coming from like a major actor like that. And like he is one of the most famous actors of all time. But yeah, so the training was really fun, low risk. And then you get to Verdun and the stakes get raised. Uh, because now we're not watching him die. We're watching her die. And that's really hard. We start to feel the weight of watching our friends die. And this is where the war elements really start to kick in. Because it's for her, she has this great comment as they finally are starting to escape Verdun and getting onto the road. And she tells him, not getting personal is the only way to survive war. That's the only... And to her, she thinks she's just talking about like to survive his experience. You're not going to make it out. I watched my best friend die 300 times. Like, you shouldn't get personal. And this, of course, sets up his detachment from his team after that scene. Because they, we watch them as they make it all the way to the helicopter. And he's trying to get her to slow down because he's not ready to watch her die again. And it's at that moment she gives him her middle name, Rose. And then she dies. And he, from that moment, everything changes. And he tries it her way to not get personal because that was like, oh, she's finally opening up to me and I can't take it. And that's kind of an interesting symbolism of Rose, right? It's it's thorny and, you know, it blooms in its own specific way. And I've always kind of attest to the idea of the rose in the concrete. Like it's this thing that, you know, can sometimes really beauty can can show up in the in the worst of places that you don't expect. And for him, he's in war and suddenly there's this rose in front of him and he's like, I can't handle this. And so he kind of pieces out from his team until the final mission to the Louvre. And I'll come back to that, that setup of the detachment because that's a big note in the cinematography uh, that I noticed. But the final mission to the Louvre story-wise, I thought it was interesting that the thing hold up in the Louvre. I don't know a ton about the Louvre, but it, I believe it holds humanity's you know, like greatest art and creative achievements, right? Like there's tons of works of art, you know, a lot of Da Vinci art is in there. Uh, and that's just an interesting place to, to put the, the necessity of salvation for humanity. We got to go there and destroy what's ta- overtaken it. Uh, I think there's some interesting symbolism of an alien coming over and destroying humanity and it holding up in one of our core works of art. And then of course, at the uh, beginning of that setup, whenever they crash the plane and cage falls into the water and he has to lose his exoskeleton. 
And I thought that was really interesting because it's kind of symbolizing he has no protection left. He's vulnerable. And them taking away his exosuit, that suit, really emphasizes that, drives it home that once he dies, he's dead. This is it. And now we make him a little more vulnerable by removing his last shred of protection. Now he has to do it for real. And also like that the way they get to the Louvre uh, is pretty cool. It's like this meteoric it's it's mirroring so the the aliens crash landed on our planet right like this meteor brought them here and the invasion of the the mimics into earth and similarly our heroes are rocketing into the enemy's territory territory in like this meteoric uh delivery <laughs> in the busted chopper right this thing is just kind of blowing along and crashes and lands and now we're going to wreck their world i do enjoy that like how they get to the Louvre from yeah. there where they just turn it on and they just scoot down on scoot across the ground to, to get to it. It's so cool. It's, it's really cool. It makes sense. It makes right? sense. And in the moment you're like, what are they going to do now? Yeah. Like they've lost their helicopter. They're so far away. These things are everywhere. In, in a movie like this, you need those moments where you feel like it is impossible yeah. for them to, to, to make this work. One, they can't die anymore because they can't reset the day uh and then two their chopper is down it can't fly three they're down to like three guys there's no way that they can make this work right how is that even possible you have to have scenarios like that it's great whenever you make that audience feel that way right right god that's good this is impossible what are they going to possibly do now i i always find myself sitting there like trying to figure out what are they going to do before I, they actually do it? Yeah. You know, like what would I do in my brain? Okay. What would I do? What would I do? And I never, I never right, get yeah, it. No. Right. Which always makes me a little upset because when I'm in that scenario, I might not be creative <laughs> we're, enough to get out we're of not it. Make we're it. totally dead. We're totally dead, bro. But that kind of, uh, Oh, so yeah, that him losing that, I think is really cool. I also like that after stealing the Omega's blood, right? Or I say stealing very loosely, uh, it was kind of thrust upon him. (laughs) But whenever he finally destroys the Omega, he returns in full rank. It resets the day even farther, further back so that he's waking up on the chopper and now he's restored in full rank. And so it makes me just wonder what kind of the the symbolism or the metaphor of this of this all is and i don't know i'm just going to throw out some ideas and you're welcome to freaking weigh in on this but is this a story about uh how mental preparation is the path to victory seeing all possible outcomes is how you win a war or win anything in life um is it a story about earning your rank and title because in that way he got busted all the way down to nothing right prisoner almost and then by the end he's whatever his rank is like major sergeant colonel captain i have no idea i forgot i'm sure they say it at the beginning uh but you know is is it a story about you know the way you earn your your rank and title is through a lot of sacrifice or through a lot of death uh through a lot of you know experience obviously is the number one way but yeah is it just kind of this light commentary about earning your rank and title because now that he has the power of an Omega, whatever that power is going to end up being is really interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I mean, what I got from it is, is a little bit like that, but it, I think it's more about, for me, it was more about, it's not really important how you die. It's more important how you live kind of thing, because at, he had the choice to not go to the Louvre after he knew that if he died, he can't reset the day anymore. That's and yet, a great point. And yet, you know, 
he, you know, Emily like cuts him out of the, of the shackles and, and they go, and they go get those guys and they go to the Louvre. All those guys, like J Company. or the, Which the, is a great edit whenever he walks up to the two guys that are always looking to kick his ass. Oh, and, yeah. And he's like, what I'm going to tell you uh, is going to sound crazy at first. But the more I talk, the more sense it's going to make. And this guy's like, what could you possibly tell me? And they smash cut right into the next scene. And then he told me my, my <laughs> yes. second grade teacher's name was. <laughs> yes, yes. There's, there's a lot of like great timed really well-timed humor yeah in it so good. yeah yeah so uh, yeah that's that's what i would get from it no that's a really great point yeah. I, I hadn't even considered that he did have the ability to be like peace i'm yeah i mean at that point i don't know why, where he was gonna go why would he he's done this probably a thousand times yeah it's kind of he rogue. knows that everybody dies really if he doesn't do this so he's got to make that decision but you know j company didn't have to make that decision to go with him you know yeah. uh those those guys were like the real deal, honestly. Um, Pretty dope. Yeah. So diving into cinematography, mm -hmm. yeah, they, they mixed it up really well. I mean, they had dolly shots, they had crane shots, um, and then a lot of handheld. Uh, and of course, handheld does a lot of things, especially during the action sequences, because all that handheld panning around on the battlefield, like we were saying earlier, really helps sell that visual effect of there's monsters here, you know, and there's, there's real things happening in it the more you can suspend that disbelief, the more you'll buy into, I don't want to see people die or whatever the, the scene is trying to get across. But the, the handheld stuff also really helps sell the war and severity of war because it adds a lot of immediacy whenever things are kind of bouncing around in the frame. And there's a lot of bouncing around in the frame, even whenever it's a, like a crane shot or a dolly shot, like sometimes they're, they're jogging through the frame and we're tracking with them, but they're just constantly bouncing up and down. And so there's a lot of movement throughout this film to kind of add that uh, we're not settled and everything is uh, constantly in motion. And so you never really feel settled uh, through most of the film. But my favorite thing with the cinematography is mostly guesswork on my part, but I love your guesswork. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's a lot of ways that they use cinematography to change the tone. So the film goes through a series of tonal changes, right? Towards the beginning, the comedy of not being able to die. And then we shift into the tragedy of not being able to keep anyone else from dying. Mm -hmm. And so there's that great comedy and tragedy elements that are at play and shifting when he decides to go it alone uh, is one of those big shifts in tone. Uh, there's that first section of we're in training and now we're in Verdun. That's a tonal shift for sure. Uh, but then even later in the film, whenever after that scene where she tells him, my, you know, her middle name is Rose and he decides I'm going to go it alone. I don't care anymore. He watches his buddies die on the beach and he just, he's done. He's over it. There's a really cool thing that I think happens for one, the simple stuff, the close up. whenever he wakes up, we're suddenly like, it's an extreme close up of to get inside of his head. And I love that. I think there's also a really big lighting shift that once he decides to go it alone, uh, and he's not protecting anybody else. There's a color change. There's a lighting shift. And I think they even shift uh, lenses. I feel like the first half of this movie was shot on spherical lenses. And then they move into anamorphic lenses 
to kind of add drama and uh, flaring, and it really just heightens everything you're experiencing. And so, whenever the difference between those lenses, yeah, you know, I was just gonna ask. Uh, it's very simple. If you were to mount the lens on the camera and you're looking right at the lens, uh, spherical is exactly what it sounds like. It's this nice round lens, uh, whereas anamorphic looks more square. Now it's still kind of bowing out because you know there's a lot of glass in there and it's m trying to accomplish a specific thing where you're squeezing your your things in the frame and then you de-squeeze it in post and it creates all these interesting visual effects especially in the uh, bokeh and whereas the spherical adds none of these interesting artifacts but i think they do that you know right at that moment uh it was my initial impression because watching the film for the most part Everything, all the bokeh, especially the lights, usually looks very round and circular. Whereas after that, it starts the the bokeh in the background starts to stretch vertically. So that is kind of a tell whenever mm. you're thinking of spherical versus anamorphic. A little bit more cinematic. Yeah, it's cinematic, and yeah, it's just a different visual touch. It can add a lot of drama, which is I I think what they're going for here is it just completely changes the tone and the, the feeling. And if for no other reason, I mean, they could have, they could have done it the inverted way, but I think if you're going to look side by side at a, those two lenses and what they're doing to the, to the screen, you're going to think the anamorphic is just more dramatic and everything from that moment on is way more dramatic. And so I think that would solve for that, that issue. But I think the lighting is really interesting because whenever he wakes up, that that next time after she's you know whenever he's deciding to go it alone there's no light in his eyes they're using catch lights throughout this whole movie and a catch light or an eye light is just that sparkle you see in someone's eye that's usually going to be a light or some kind of reflective you know surface that they're bouncing into the actor's eye to add some kind of quality to it and it's usually going to be oh it's a it's a happier moment or it's a I don't know, um, any number of things, a sad moment, or in this case, they removed the, the eye light to kind of emphasize there is no light in his eye. He's kind of dead inside or he's upset and it feels like the life is kind of drained out of him. And so using the eye light with that kind of specificity is pretty cool. This is not the same person anymore. A serious shift in his psyche has been made. And so this really helps add the sadness and depth of hurt he's experiencing primes us for a shift in his approach because it's not like they do that for the rest of the film now they're shifting even whenever he approaches rita this time the highlights are larger than before actually like i'm looking uh, side by side and suddenly the highlights are a lot bigger they're placed differently they're a little more centered in his eye and it adds kind of a, a sadness uh in a I don't know, forlorn, you know, kind of emotion, emotional quality to, to what he's feeling. Whereas before in the earlier scenes, whenever, you know, he approaches her when she's, you know, stretching or, uh, practicing her yoga, meditating. I don't remember that scene. And, <laughs> and we see him approach the first time, like he, there's, there's highlights and they're smaller and they're kind of, you know, placed around his eye a little more interestingly. But whenever he gets into the, uh, that time, whenever he's abandoning her and he walks away, when she starts kind of grilling him, as she does every single time, and he has to win her over every single time. Now he's just like, um, I can't do this anymore. And he walks away. Mm -hmm. And the way they use those highlights really helps add that emotion to him. As an actor, it's great to bring as much as you can to the, to the role. But it's even better 
whenever you're a cinematographer can add that emotion for you as well. Yeah. And all of that combines to something great. And what they're doing there as well is they're cooling the scene down. Uh, and this is kind of cool. Uh, no pun intended that the, the shift in color, the color grade there is a little more blue as it isn't quite as warm as it was before. And that kind of is also an emotional reflection of what's happening in the story. Like now he's just uh, a little more depressed or a little more focused and the joy of this is gone. Like he feels more isolated and alone and they're reflecting that through the color, through the use of the eye lights. Um, and I think maybe there's even a slightly harder lighting. It's not huge, but it feels like it might just be a little harder, uh, in the lighting or not. I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is just kind of, you know what I'm getting out of it. No, I love it. And yeah, I think that's just a really cool way to look at the way you're going to shoot something like this. Because you might think, we're going to set it up once, we're going to shoot the same thing over and over and over again. But they were professionals, as you yeah. would hope. <laughs> yeah, and why not Why not try something to sep separate these yeah. moments just a little bit in something that might not be noticeable to Todd, yeah. but that's noticeable to a Wes out yeah. there, right? And or, it, or it's felt by it's both. felt. You know? And I think the audience always feels it. They just can't put their finger on it. Yeah. They don't know why a That's scene suddenly feels different. Really but it's cool. all of these things. It's, and you throw music on top of that, freaking home run. So I have, a, I have a question. If you only had enough money for the cinematographer that you wanted or for the, the grip or the gaffer that you wanted, grip and gaffer, the lighting, genie whatever. So one or the other, you can only have one or the other and you could have, I mean, you could have both, but you're going to have a normal, like right. one hmm. or the other and, and like the best one or the other. That's tough. What's more important? I mean, the right answer is and why I would say the right answer is the DP. Yeah. Um, because they're trained to think about all these things that I'm talking about. Like they're not, they're not just showing up on set and saying, put a light over there and put a light over there. We're going to set the camera here and let's roll. Like they're sitting in pre-production with you discussing the story, uh, looking at what are the themes of the story and what are we doing? And you know, how are you seeing this come to come to play? What they're asking the director for sure. It's not like they're doing this in, in a bubble and they do whatever they want, but they're, they're a major player in this though. And them and the director talk and the director might say, Hey, you know, I, I think this is a story about a man finding his humanity. And so I want to reflect that, you know, he comes to life. And so as a director, you might start in your head thinking this is by the end, there, it, there should be more life, not, not less, but the cinematographer might come in and say, okay, I see what you're saying, but there's an emotional beat here that I think it's the opposite. I think we, we, we desaturate as he's going through these emotions and then maybe, the final scene, uh, we add all that saturation back in and now we've experienced these visual changes that kind of take you through the emotional arcs of this character through color. And that's something that a cinematographer would, you know, start, you know, want to have a conversation on now cool. my answer, if it were my set. <laughs> oh wait. Okay. So that the setup, <laughs> that's the right, answer. Say the right answer. And then your answer, my answer would be, I would probably go for the gaffer because you would be the cinematographer. That's right. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Man of many hats. Right. That's what I, that's what I thought. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, as I was saying it, I was like, I wonder if he's going to cheat. <laughs> You're totally cheating. I did. It's fine. It's uh, fine. If you can, if you can do it, why, why not? 
The the last thing, and this isn't related to anything. This is just a random thing that I kind of I like, enjoy in I like randos. war movies like this. I grew up son of a military guy, and there's just these random questions that we would ask, you know, my uh, biological father, uh, because he was in the military for 20-some-odd years. He was a sergeant, a, I don't know if he was a master sergeant, a top, whatever a top is. And one of the cool things, you know, that I learned from him was whenever – you're in an actual battle at night, especially you put what's called a tracer in, you know, in your clip. Oh, yeah. And so as you're firing, so whenever we're watching this movie and we're seeing these, these guys firing all these shots, you, you can see the, the rounds sometimes, but you're only actually seeing like one out of every 10 it's or like, 20 yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, rounds. Right. Um, and so that's what you're seeing. That's a tracer to kind of help them see where their fire is going. Otherwise you're just kind of firing into nothing. Yeah. Like you don't know where your, your shots are going, but I love that they use tracers and it's, low-hanging fruit that's a visual not, element not all the bullets are tracers that's right right and that was uh, the kind of satisfying thing to me is like oh we're not just agreed. shooting you know 60 rounds a second and they're all tracers <laughs> like, agreed no we're gonna yeah. fire out you know every whatever we're gonna keep it honest yeah i like that yeah i do too <laughs> i noticed that too it's cool right yes yes <laughs> um yeah Man, so that was a lot of fun that was i love this movie <laughs> I just like to let you talk. <laughs> this one, I was just like, I'm just going to sit back and I already said my piece. So, so what would you give it out of five? For me, this is a five. Like I just, Whoa, I enjoy it really because it's live, die, repeat. I kind of just want to live, watch, repeat. Like I, I enjoy this so much. Uh, and I am hoping they're doing a sequel. No. Yeah. It's in production and I have faith that they wouldn't do a sequel for it, this movie yeah. if they didn't have something good because it didn't do oh, big agree. enough numbers to justify. I totally agree. And totally so agree. I think isn't it funny? Like there's there's some movies where you're like, do not make another one. <laughs> I don't care how much money it made, how much money you think it's gonna make, it's gonna be shit. <laughs> right. uh, but then a movie like this, and you think, oh no, a sequel yeah. sequel could be really good. Totally. Like, uh, and I'm just gonna say, like. A sequel to District 9 would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That would be incredible. I've been waiting for that for a long time. Right? Or whatever. whatever. Yeah. But like some movies just scream for it. I think this one would be really a lot of fun. Oh, man. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, I'm excited. Um, Yeah. Where where are you at? I'm at a solid four. Nice. Solid four. That's a great rating. I would give give an eight. Every time I've watched it, I've loved about, well, about... 80% 80% of it. Nice. Um, and then it just starts to get a little slower at the end. And then it's a little, it kind of, it's, I'm fine with it, but it's a little cheap that he, he gets the Omega he blood, gets the Omega blood and then comes back with his rank and everything. It's very feel good. Yeah. It's very feel good. And then he goes back to Emily Blunt and then what do they have babies and stuff? I don't know. Um, so that's a little cheap for me. Just because there's no, you know, nobody, there's nobody, nobody gets lost. Nobody dies. True. You know what I mean? The After sacrifice everybody really dies there. and no one dies. Yeah. Uh, so, and you know me and, you know, heroes dying. I'm always <laughs> pro heroes. Sacrifice. Hero di- pro yeah. sacrifice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Especially in a movie like this where it's aliens against the world. So, somebody has to pay some kind of price. Yeah. And it's important because you have this. PR rep, you know, who is assigned to be an embed in a war and he does everything he can. He, like, he threatens blackmail to get out of it. He runs away. Like 
in every way he was trying to not be that guy, but it's kind of cool to, yeah, I'm fine with it. I know it obviously bothers you, uh, which is super justifiable. Well, it doesn't bother me. Hmm. So, uh, I will, I will say I still, I still like it. True. You know, I'm just Mm -hmm. saying the type of movie that I really respond to are the one where I'm, where I talk about it to people and I say, man, this was really good or, or whatever are the ones that usually end up, you know, costing something more. I can still enjoy it. I can still watch it and it was a popcorn movie and, and enjoy it and think it was a lot of fun and really good. And I would watch it again. That's the other thing. That's like the rewatchability of edge of tomorrow is way up there. Yeah. I could watch this movie all like, you know, once every few months and be and love it every time, you know, it's really, really great. So yeah, a solid, solid four just on rewatchability and, and most of it is just really good. And Bill Paxson's in it. So yes. Oh, yeah. Bill Paxson's the best. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so what are you going to recommend the Hannah this week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to recommend something that is, you know what? I'm going to give you a hint. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Was that your phone? No. Is your phone not on silent while we're recording a podcast? Holy crap, it isn't. Wow. First time for everything. Do you see this? Are you seeing this, you YouTubers? Because usually we're on the same wavelength here, but this has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Devil Wars product. Man, that's good guess, but no. Oh. But no. Okay. Think early 80s. Yeah, I'm going early 80s. Think early 80s and a movie that I would love. And I'll give you three guesses. Okay. And we're, this is just something that we do. Yeah. Right? Just to see if you can. <sighs> okay. Not tangential I, to I Edge ha- of Tomorrow. Hate, yeah, it has nothing to do with Edge of Tomorrow. Okay. I hate 80s. I hate 80s. Yeah. So. Amadeus? No, but that's a great movie. Yeah, it is. Man, that's a good movie. 1984 Best Picture winner. <laughs> yes. Yes, I knew that. <laughs> did you really? I did. I oh, did. crap. Same year. Ooh, ooh. Tom Cruise related? No. no. Bill Paxton related? No, it's not related to anything. Damn you. Anything having to do with, with this movie, with uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Nothing. Really? No. Yeah, I got nothing. The Burbs. No, but that's a good that one. That's a good one. Wow. You, okay, maybe I do like these movies. Uh, one, more, one more hit. It, uh, uh, music. Sudden Nancy? No. This is Spinal Tap. Ah, nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah, for those of you listening, I am a musician, or I have been for most of my life. And this was definitely a, a staple in my life. Uh, this, this movie just like hits, it hits home right here, right here. I love it. So good. And it's just, it's just a lot of fun. It's another one of those movies where I couldn't watch it all the time, but I can go back after maybe five years and watch it and just laugh just as hard (laughs) as I did the first time I watched it. (laughs) It's especially funny to other musicians. So if you play Mm -hmm. anything or if you've ever played in a band or the dynamics of a band, Oh my God. If you've ever had a manager or a label or put any kind of music out or tried to tour like 
or bought a guitar. Like it's, it's so just, good. Yeah. Cause yeah. watching it with y'all, that was the only time I've ever watched it was oh, really? with y'all. Yeah. Huh. I could see the dynamics of every one of y'all in that in movie. the room. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and the, <laughs> in the characters. <laughs> yes, definitely. Oh yeah. And just playing with other guys. So anyway. Good. Yeah. That was a little fun experiment there. Nice. Close. I'm going to recommend Hannah watch source code. Oh, like, nice. Yeah. Uh, if you like edge of tomorrow, you know, source code is it's fantastic. I saw that. I almost picked that. Did you really? I was. I thought it was a possibility. I was like, I'm hamstringing yeah. myself. But I was back up on Swingers. I was going to recommend Swingers if you ended up with Source Code because mm-hmm. um, okay. that's Doug Lyman's kind of breakout hit. Yeah, I just fe- I felt like like I kind of wanted to get away from the sci-fi for just a second in my nice. go and yeah. just do something kind of fun. It's been really heavy. We've done some heavy stuff. Yeah, lately. we've turned it up to an eleven here, and we just needed to. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So there's a really cool short spotlight that I'm excited about. It's called You Know Where You Belong. And it's kind of like a commercial slash short film. I probably went through 12 or 15 short films looking for something that I was connecting with. And this one, it took maybe 15 seconds to 20 seconds before I was like, oh, man, this is great. And I started really getting oh, wow. into it. And it's only like minute 50. Oh, uh, that's so good. And by the end of it, I realized... It's like they shot this on film too, which you don't expect to randomly find a short film on Vimeo uh, that was shot on Kodak. Like, that, yeah, that's crazy. And so it won me over in a number of ways. Uh, but yeah, it's really smart. Uh, it's called You Know Where You Belong. It's by David Finley. So props, buddy. And uh, yeah, so awesome. you can check that out and stay tuned for next week when we cover yeah. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And we're going to have a guest. Who's our guest, Todd? My wife. What? Yeah, we're going to have Jenny, Jenny Sapio, Jennifer Sap, Dr. Jennifer Sapio on the podcast. I'm really excited about this because she's not the biggest movie buff, mm-hmm. right? She's a reader. She's a book nerd. Went to Columbia, summa cum laude. She's way smarter than I am. Got a PhD from got the University PhD. of Texas. Yes, yes. Um, in literature. So I'm really interested. So she knows story. Right. And she and she likes movies for sure. And we we every now and then watch, you know, movies, but she's very sensitive to, you know, violence and stuff. So we don't she doesn't ever watch any of that stuff. So I'm really interested to hear her take on it, especially like. As it different if it differs from how she felt the first time she saw it or the first few times Mm. and. Yeah. It'll be interesting. This will be our first guest while on camera. That's right. Yeah. We're going to have to figure out how to do the setup. Maybe she'll sit at the head of the table. Yeah. I like that. Don't forget to subscribe, review us on iTunes, leave us a note if you would like us to talk about a movie. Hannah, uh, <laughs> she's probably never going to listen to this no. episode. No. <laughs> but if you want to comment on this episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash edge of tomorrow. And your quote of the day by Sun Tzu. Yeah, Sun Tzu, the art of war. Sun Tzu, yeah. Victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. What what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think that's that means you're you're more worried about winning, doing everything it takes to win. And it's kind of the maturity and of of a warrior as opposed to losers just jump in they go straight into war and then they figure it out later like it's planning it's preparation it's the readiness you are the master of your own fate and in his view you know 
victorious winners will always win ahead of time. You don't show up mm-hmm. on the day of yeah. and think now we win war or win anything. I think we, we talk about it a lot is the secret to a good film starts in pre-production. It starts with the script. It starts way before you ever pick up a camera. Once you have the, the film made in your head and to some extent on paper, then you go make your film. You don't wait to show up on the day of and start making your film. Yeah. Generally speaking. Yeah. Right. right. There's always going to be exceptions that prove. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What does it, what does it mean to you? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a mentality thing. Maybe it's a, cause you, you have these guys who are just like kind of war, war hungry or battle hungry, right. Where they just want to be in battle right? They want to like feel that rush, that dopamine rush of like being on razors, a razor's edge of, of losing your life. Mm -hmm. Right. Or to have that thrill of having a kill, right. Which is not the same as, as someone who is there to win. Right. Because if you're just hungry for the battle, then that's the self, that's the individual. But if you are part of a J crew, uh, J squad, sorry, what it is, or, you know, a group, right. Then it is a larger, you're, you're working with a larger, uh, scope of people in mind, right. With, with like, right. And so maybe it's something like that where it's the mentality of, of going in not to destroy the other, the warriors across from you, but you've already won in your head. You know, I, th- I think that some like a good example of that would be, uh, it's like a confidence thing. Yeah. So, uh, Tom Brady is a great example. He's already won every game he will ever play in his head. Yeah. And that's evident when he gets on the field and he's down 17 points in the fourth quarter and comes back and wins the game. Be- he's never worried. He's never rushed. He's never insecure. He's never, he never thinks he can't do it. And nine times out of 10, he can. And if he, if, if the team fails, it's because another part of the team broke down, but it's never him. Right. The He's, ability to shake off uh, a misstep. Yes. And keep going. It all plays. It's all playing or, into that. Or to not even misstep. Hmm. Right. So he's so prepared that he's not going to misstep. He's already won before he even sets foot on the field. Like you said, you already know the movie, the film, before you've picked up a camera like that's the whole preparation thing and so maybe yeah it's saying the same thing you just said i think but it's like a to me that seems like a mentality thing right you're already one in your head um so that the war is just the means to get to the victory to what you call the victory but you've already won that's cool i don't know anyway thank you guys for joining us that was a good quote i liked it thanks man i had a good time me too uh thanks for joining us again please share this with your friends and uh invite them to listen we have a patreon uh and we do have some some well you know we take suggestions with that so it's we have one tier it's two dollars obviously you could uh support with more if you'd like but we just wanted to start with one thing and we're going to give everybody the same stuff access to show notes uh, early access to these videos uh, they come out you know several days before they actually are released 
Uh, and then, you know, other random things. Uh, you're working on a few things, yeah. a few uh, uh, essays, right? Yeah, I'm making what's, what I'm calling like pestle essays or video essays yes. where I'm taking kind of all my notes, well, not all of my notes, but a portion of my notes and turning them into visual, you know, storytelling elements. So you can see exactly what I'm talking about. Like whenever I'm discussing the, the lighting shift in, in this movie, I will literally, you know, pull up those frames and like compare them. Oh, here's what the eye light looks like before, you know, he's given up and after he's uh, given up on his team. And so, yeah, and, and it's more poetic than I just made it sound. No, but. no, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. All of those things, you know, you get access for that on, on the Patreon. Uh, we have t-shirts for sale as well. We've sold a few t-shirts, so that's a lot of fun. Um, we're just having a lot of fun doing this. Uh, and hopefully it's evident in, in uh, what we're putting out there. But, you know, we can't do any of it. I mean, we can do it without you, but it's much more fun if you so listen. So much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> 10,000 downloads, man. Crazy. Very, very proud of you. Thanks, man. I'm proud of us. Super proud I, of us. I, I think um, it's pretty cool. This is our 92nd episode. We're coming very close to the three digits. Centennial. Which is, which is insane yeah. to me. But, you know, I wouldn't rather be doing this with anybody else. Same, so. man. Love this. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for being a part. Yeah. Thank you. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we'll see you uh, next week. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies.